a slightly different kind of cold open this week, dear listeners. Just a note, really. Uh, the article we end up discussing in this episode ends up being updated uh, with new facts. Um, without giving too much away, check your f- show notes to see what it's all about. Basically has to do with a German governmental decision that uh, took place today. Doesn't really change the episode. Hope you enjoy it. Thanks for listening. Let me just, let me just, hold on, let me just get my bearings. Mm-hmm. What have you been doing? Push-ups? that's what i do before i record a podcast just to get the blood flowing yeah yeah i understand that some of us drink others do (laughs) push-ups the muslims do push-ups i guess yeah they're known for that yeah yeah um and i i should note i should note as we start here that um i have not eaten anything all day so that could either mean that i will say more profound things or less profound things over the course of this episode? It's hard to tell. I don't think it's hard to tell. Fasting is supposed to actually clear your head and make you better, right? Uh, <laughs> isn't that why? Isn't that why uh, most most religions ask that? I mean, it's a, no, it's I, a it's a it's good for you. I don't think it's supposed to make you a better performer or or produce more in terms of work. Like you're not going to be as productive if you're fasting all day. I think the point is mostly to build self-discipline and to prove yourself that you can uphold a structure that is externally imposed, which is, I think, quite valuable. But I don't, I don't think we should pretend that um, all good things go to get. <laughs> oh boy, have a have a have, have some have a burger or something while we while we record. No, I mean honestly, I, I I've. Uh... I've uh I mean we haven't talked about it in the podcast. I mean I I I I play around with that sort of intermittent fasting stuff every so often. Um and uh I've always found that sometimes by accident but other times, you know, on in on purpose, uh I've found that that my head is clearer. Uh I don't know if that's placebo uh or what and there's no really way to tell, but I find that that um it's just good for me mentally. I mean, I think I think it's it's certainly not good for, you know, going out to plow the fields or something like that, but turns out I don't have any fields and I don't 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 do plowing, so uh you know, I I find it I find it good good for the brain. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I sometimes I like not having lunch during the day um because it it keeps me light. So I feel like if I have a big meal during the day, I get a little bit slow afterwards and I just feel like taking a nap. And also, um, I caused some controversy yesterday on Twitter by making some statements about the keto diet, or as we like to call it, the keto lifestyle. We don't like the word diet. Yeah, you said it was the Islam of diets. I didn't see that that caused. <laughs> I that 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 tweet was forwarded to me by two people, and I was really, like, and I was just like, oh well, whatever. I've heard this so many times, but I didn't know it got you in trouble. Didn't, you, wait, is, wait, is there, why, a fat, is there a fatwa out against you? <laughs> wait, why were people randomly sending you? text messages about me saying that were they like mutual friends and like oh look at what shaddy said did you see that or they're like demir why is shaddy saying these things can, one, you, can one you was, talk one, to him one was ani saying isn't this your joke i said no this is shaddy's joke he's been saying this forever uh and uh and then i i uh i forget who the second person was i think mm, it's a mutual mm. mutual acquaintance i but i feel like a good a good chunk of my day since we've been doing this podcast and since it's been doing better is people sending me your tweets. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Wow. That kind of makes it all worth it. Uh, but I should, in, um, in the interest of fairness and accuracy, um, I want to give my brother mm. Sharif some credit. He does listen to the podcast every now and then. I am not the one who coined the phrase keto is the Islam of diets. That's My brother did. I, your brother's way, way more impressive than you, Shadi, ultimately. <laughs> I think in every way. He's funnier. Many, he's nicer. He's just, he's brilliant. Many people say this. Yeah. How do you feel about that? <laughs> <laughs> I will say, I will say he probably is funnier. Yeah. Um, oh shit. That was, that was harsh. <laughs> no, no, that's positive. Like, wait, isn't that better that he's funny? I listed he's other. Th- than I, I listed am? a bunch of things, and, and you're like, "Well, I will say he is funnier." <laughs> oh yeah, I see what you mean now. Yeah. That's, that that is funny. But uh, <laughs> so, but what I was saying, um, I guess, first of all, people didn't really understand what I meant when I said Islam is uh, is the keto. Wait, sorry, keto is the Islam of Islam diets. is the keto of diets. Yes, 
Go on. Or Islam is the keto of religions. Yeah, yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> but Go look, I, you've probably heard me explain this before, but other people didn't really understand the context. I mean, the basic idea is simply that um, keto seems very challenging to the outsider. It's very rules-based. It has a lot of regulation. It's it's it has a it has a very it has a somewhat elaborate not elaborate structure but a serious structure. Right. And at first at first blush you might be like, "Oh my god, how am I going to do that?" So similarly with Islam, you know, people sometimes say, "Well, you can't do this, you can't do that." But once you buy into the system, you have quite a bit of freedom within those constraints. So it's like it's like freedom within restriction. Right. So in other words, with keto, you can have unlimited cheese, unlimited steak to your heart's desire. So you can pretty much do anything you want as long as you're following the basic rules. Right. Which might seem sort of like self-contradictory to people, then it's not freedom, but that's kind of the point. You don't want full freedom in keto. The whole point of keto is that it forces you to reshape how you approach eating and food over the course of the day. And it's not meant to be the easiest thing in the world. But if you actually buy into it and you just sort of let yourself, you give yourself up to it, if you submit. Submit, if you will. <laughs> if you will, then it can actually work pretty well. So I was joking that this is why keto is effective. Um, wait. <laughs> Islam is effective? Uh, yeah, this is... Um, yeah, keto is the Islam of diets. That's what makes it so effective. Right. Or like, right. it's no surprise that it's so effective. So, right. And then I, then I had a kind of like smirking face at the end, just so people didn't take me too seriously. Right. And yet, they did. Uh, yeah, but people also like, you know, got intense about like, oh, this is why Islam is so bad, just oh. like keto is. Oh, 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 I didn't, actually, I didn't see that one coming. Yeah, That's good. they take That's it good. in these different directions. Yeah. People are creative. That's the wisdom and, of crowds right there. Clearly. <laughs> um, but anyway, if folks, we can maybe include the link to my tweet in the show notes. And what's more interesting is to see all the weird responses that I got. Like some people loved it. Some people were confused. Um, so you can maybe enjoy that if you, if you so desire. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, so I, I guess what I, what I'd like to talk about this, I mean, it's, it's kind of, you know, I think there was, there might be some means of, of pivoting into this about the question of like, what is real freedom, right? I mean, you know, unfettered freedom, but it's, it's, um, it ties into, I guess, all sorts of things that, that, that we come back to all the time. I shared this article with you today uh, that yeah. uh, it was in the New York Times titles, Germany places far-right AFD party under surveillance for extremism. Um, and I don't know, I just, you know, as often we do when we don't have any idea what we're going to talk about, you know, one of us maybe finds an article and just shares it and like, okay, let's use this as a jumping off point. But I've been sort of thinking about um, some of the implications for it because, I mean, you know, uh, we could talk about, as we've talked about on Clubhouse the other day, about, you know, the sort of increasing illiberality of liberalism and where that's going. And I guess we could reprise that that conversation uh, from Clubhouse. But I, I've, I have some, some sort of like maybe uh, different questions to uh, pursue on this. Um, but I don't know. I mean, maybe maybe say a few words about about your thoughts on, on this, uh, and and in fact your your uh, tweet storm from earlier this week about the you know encroaching illiberalism of uh, of well somewhat liberals in, in Austria as well. So I don't know. Maybe maybe say a few words yeah, about sure. that. Yeah, sure. Well, well, I'm glad that you sent me that link because I hadn't actually seen it today, um, and um, I I've actually stopped reading the news or really being aware of the news, and it's like a very odd disembodied feeling i feel like it definitely feels different and i think i like it generally i mean this has always been the direction that i've wanted to go in for quite some time but i think this week in particular i'm aware of almost nothing and i don't even check the new york times homepage in the morning which is sort of like one of my residual habits from the days when we still felt that the new york times was the paper of record and we liked it sort of um so I think that, and, and also I should say that I'm spending more time on Clubhouse. So that's kind of how I absorb information oh, now. Man. Like whenever I'm oh, bored or, oh, or whenever I'm taking a break from doing work, I'll just kind of see who's chatting on Clubhouse. And I was literally doing that um, today. And I, I stumbled upon this incredible conversation 
about um, dating and sex and having children in the modern era. And it was so freewheeling and almost like a little bit incelly. There were a couple of people who were like saying kind of incelish, incelly type things. And it was just, but it was funny and everyone, and no one was being totally serious, but they were, they were trying to make bigger points about where we're at on some of these big questions. But um, everyone was approaching the conversation in good faith. And people seemed to know each other in the room, even though it was an open room. And there was something very refreshing about no one like jumping on someone else if they say something wrong or saying if or if they say something a little bit politically incorrect. And that's really what I've come to like about Clubhouse, that when you actually talk to people, I was going to say face to face, in this case, it's just ear to ear or something or phone to phone. Mouth to ear. <laughs> Mouth to ear. <laughs> then you you give them the benefit of the doubt. You're not trying to grandstand and tell them that they're bad because you don't have a crowd that is calling for someone's head. Unless you have like a really big clubhouse room, but that's not really the way that it works. But if you have like a hundred people in a room, you don't get a lot by being a jerk. Anyway, this is all a roundabout way of saying that- You don't um, read the news anymore. I don't. But also it's hard to, it's hard to make opinions if you don't follow the news. So it's actually, I don't have strong opinions about a lot of things now because I'm not aware of them. I mean, I'll always have my strong opinions about liberalism, democracy, the Middle East, democracy promotion in the Middle East, so on and so forth. But if someone was like, Shadi, well, do you have an opinion about what happened last week on X issue? I could make one up on the spot probably using my first principles and then extending out from that but I'd probably be bullshitting. Right. So right. I was happy that you sent me this link because I hadn't seen it. And I think it's a really, really interesting story. So uh, for those of you who will be listening or who are listening, the title is Germany Places Far-Right AFD Party Under Surveillance for Extremism. It is the first time in Germany's post-war history that a party in the federal parliament has elicited this level of scrutiny as a potential threat to democracy. So that sort of captures the basic idea. I found it fascinating because uh, I literally was reading through this article and I'm like, are you, for, is this for real? Because some of the justifications for putting the AFD under surveillance were absurd. I mean, if there were actual good reasons, I'd be willing to listen, to hear them out and we can judge accordingly. And I thought they'd have something a little bit like some kind of smoking gun that they caught some AFD parliamentarian doing something that really crossed any potent, like, like not just a red line, but like a purple line. But I didn't see anything of the sort. And we can maybe talk about what some of these rationales are for putting the AFD under surveillance. Just as some background, though, um, the AFD is the alternative for Germany. And they are, um, as you know, far right, we could sometimes also call them right wing populist, radical right, so on and so forth. But what's interesting is that, and obviously Germany has a history of bad things happening with far right parties. So this is, this is specific to the German context. So Germany has something called, um, I forget what it's called exactly, but the um, the Federal Agency for the Protection of the Constitution, something like that. Yep. And they pretty much monitor parties to make sure that they're not going too far either to the radical right or the radical left. So the Communist Party in the past has had some trouble, um, for, even though it's on the far left. So, so it's a really interesting case, and, and it gets to a lot of the big themes that we talk about on the podcast, which is... Everyone draws a line. The question is, where do we draw our lines? When we talk about going too far, what is too far? Um, what are the limits of liberalism or what are the limits of democracy? Should there be some parties that simply are prevented from participating in the democratic process because they're too problematic or too bad or too frightening or too extreme? So this is going to be a really important case, I think. And I should also say, and I think I mentioned this probably last a year and a half ago or something, that I had just come back. Um, it was one of my last trips uh, abroad before COVID. I was in Germany, and part of what I was doing was interviewing, uh, you know, leader uh, leaders of 
this party, the AFD, and I was surprised that I got quite a bit of um, good access to some of their um, leading figures, including their sort of um, their their philosopher in chief, uh, if you will, chief sort of, ideologue, chief right. ideologue, yeah, yeah, the sort of yeah, <laughs> the the kind of intellectual architect, and also their in-house Islam expert, and they do have a kind of in-house Islam expert who speaks fluent Arabic. Uh, he peppers his sentences with inshallah, which was like really weird. So I'm meeting up with him for dinner. And then he's like talking about like how much he loved going to Egypt recently with his family. And he's like, inshallah, I can go there again soon. And I'm like, who the fuck is this guy? This is crazy. Um, but he did his, he he's interesting because he did his PhD dissertation, then published a book that is about a very obscure aspect of early Islamic law. And it's from formation. So and it's actually that study was well regarded. And then he became a far right um, ideologue. Anyway, an interesting bunch of characters. And so having spent some time with these folks, even some of the more hardline among them, you know, I can sort of um, it's like, hmm, this is interesting. I know some of these people. Yes, there are scary things about them. They are definitely anti-Muslim. That's for sure. Yeah. But yeah, I, I, the thing that jumped out at me before I sort of try and, and get us into like this weird substantive thing that I, I have in mind, uh, it's bizarre that, that – or at least it's indicative that it's leaked out that they're now under surveillance. I mean there were, there were stories – I mean I think they were putting members out of surveillance. I think the, the difference is now that this is the whole party is being yeah, put under surveillance. Right. And But the, the, the fascinating thing is, is, is if it's out that you're being surveilled, you know what I mean? Like it's – you take precautions. It's not – once the story's out. So it's interesting how that seems to be playing out. Like someone's leaking on the inside and someone's uncomfortable with this, clearly. Uh, it's interesting. The New York Times, of course, only cites people supportive of the decision and, you know, about like, uh, et cetera, et cetera. It doesn't really to be fair, they do decision. cite they do cite a couple of the AFD responses. That right, the, but it's just like Nazis angry at being <laughs> at being surveilled by the righteous. Like, Nazis angry at being called Nazis. Right, right, right. Dirty Nazis being like outraged at, at 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 the righteous trying to curtail their their nefarious yeah, well, behavior. It, it's interesting you mentioned that because the timing is auspicious. I mean, there are upcoming, um, I think, local and state elec- uh, elections, and then there there will be national elections um, later on. Uh, but but um, the fact that it's coming in the lead up to campaign season, and like you said, if a, if a party is going to be under surveillance. And that's obviously now a, a public knowledge for most Germans who are considering who they want to vote for in upcoming elections. Would you really want to vote for a party that is being surveilled? Obviously, I, I would think that some people are going to say, well, maybe I'll just not do that this time. I mean, obviously, we're still talking about a secret ballot. I don't know if the government can really know what um what individuals are doing in the privacy of the ballot box but still it's not a good vibe well but that's a that's a good point uh and it's i think it's this can get me into what i want to talk about it's it's uh um i imagine germans still think that the secret ballot is secret and and it's one of those things that this strikes me as one of those moves uh that potentially in any case uh, creates like counter legitimation is just like uh like really really sp- like sparks the fuck you vote to a certain extent because once you sort of start painting a party in these sort of lines you know uh, deservedly or not uh, a lot of sort of marginal people that don't consider themselves fascists or racists or anything like that but are voting for them anyway will start questioning the the dominant narrative right I mean this this is one of those stories that sort of keeps popping up over and over in all of this like populist turmoil you know it's all of a sudden people get uh, you know uh, I guess the the opposite of woke is red pilled, and they just get red pilled at that point, and then everything is questioned. You know, everything is 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 in doubt. Anything that comes out of uh, straight sources is is uh, is 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 potentially not not uh, on the up and up. But so I mean, that just gets me thinking. You know, I was I was on this uh, panel this morning, and it was Chatham House Rules, so can't really say much about it. But someone said on it, it wasn't about Germany; it was broadly about Europe. And, uh, you know, a lot of people on the panel were were uh, really convinced technocrats. And one of them is an economist, and he just dropped this term, which I hadn't heard before. Um, and it had to do uh, with, you know, technocrats on, in the European context being able to 
generate outcome legitimacy is the term that he used. Hmm, hmm. And that just jumped out at me. It's like outcome legitimacy. Wow, that's that like defines the approach to politics of the entire European continent and arguably of the Biden administration as well, right? It's it's we will now legislate and we will legislate righteously to, you know, create outcomes that will make us popular and legitimate our rule. I mean, it's not like uh large chunks of the European establishment are not legitimate, not like Biden's not legitimate. But it's this belief that like technocracy in the in the in the service of, you know, righteous goals basically is like will legitimate itself that way through providing good outcomes. And so I don't know. I mean, I guess what I want to sort of kick back and forth with you a little bit is this idea of like what is legitimacy in these sorts of systems and and what is it that is delegitimating about some of these moves and what generates legitimacy because on the one hand i it does feel like it right like there's um we're at a moment now where where the forces of of right and good and good governance and and you know liberal straight down the middleism uh are are gathering and they have some levers of power in in various places to different uh extents and the goal is to you know i guess create uh positive outcomes to legitimate their technocratic rule basically and i think it's wrong to just dismiss this as one side and the other side is this populist will of the people obviously outcome outcomes do matter and in an ideal form of democracy right we do think that good outcomes should legitimate a government and i and sort of get them reelected that's part of the mechanism of democracy but i don't know Maybe kick that around with me a little bit. Like, yeah. what what is this like counter legitimacy that's popping up? Why why have why have technocrats properly delegitimize delegitimate delegitimize themselves? And I was just thinking of that in the context of this move, which seems dangerously delegitimizing, even though it's perfectly legal. It sounds like within the German uh, structures and and sort of constitutional order. Um, you know, what I mean, like, what 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 do you think the source of this like counter legitimacy that is not outcome legitimacy is where does it come from yeah well i mean there like you said there's two options one can be red-pilled and move further to the right or one can see developments like this and be like hey uh, i gotta be careful i want to be with the good people and i want to stay closer to the center and maybe i went too far that's too re and and stigma and social social ostracism uh, matters here because uh, people I think that especially with this recent announcement in Germany, you know you'll be more careful about maybe if you tell your friends that you have sympathies with the AFD because now they're being considered an extremist party. At the same time, you might keep something deep within you privately and you're suppressing it, where you develop this anger towards existing institutions. And then you're driven to be more radical. And it's very hard to predict how someone, it's very much based on the idiosyncrasies of individuals and how they react to certain triggers. And um, so I'm actually reading a book now called Red Pill. It's a novel by Harry Kunzru. And it's funny because sort of one of the, one of the plots is that um, this liberal author guy who writes about like, the dialectics of poetry or some shit like that he get he he stumbles on this like um crypto nazi guy and he becomes obsessed with the crypto nazi and then he loses his mind basically uh i'm not sure i mean it's just like it's just funny to think that cuz that's sort of what red pilling can do like you you interact with these people and then you just lose your bearings one way or the other so is the counter legitimacy of the fact that like maybe the social media just creates the space for the people who are harboring doubts to just find each other and therefore legitimate like just a, a counter world is that all that that's there i mean because you know you and i have always sort of groused against the technocratic mindset and i when 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 this guy rolled out outcome legitimacy i was like holy god outcome legitimacy this is exactly everything that's that's crazy about about sort of the european approach to solidifying things this is it, there's more to it than that but then like as as the day was going on i was thinking to myself i was like well maybe i should like take a step back and think that through a little bit because outcome legitimacy is real i mean at least democracy is based on it right well, look, okay, so the technocratic view of things, so 
So here's a good example. Here's one of the justifications for putting the AFD under surveillance, which gets at some of these bigger questions. Because some of it depends on like what what exactly are people worried about? Presumably they're worried about bad outcomes that might result from this party playing a bigger role. It's worth noting this party is the leader of the opposition. It doesn't have a huge number of seats in parliament. It has about 13%, but because there's what basically a kind of unity government that has the other big parties, they are sort of by default, the leader of the opposition. So we're literally here talking about the largest opposition party in in a democracy, which so if it was just like a a fringe party of like 3%, and they just had a couple seats, that would maybe be a different story. But um, anyway, so the, the domestic intelligence agency apparently spent two years scrutinizing the speeches and social media posts of AFD officials. Now, it's interesting because I guess like any researcher could really do that. Here's what they actually came up with. And it's it's kind of lame. Here's what it says in the, in the article. The assessment, which amounted to 1,100 pages, concluded that the party's position violated key principles of liberal democracy. And here's the kicker. Not least Article 1 of the German Constitution, which states that human dignity is unassailable. Hmm. So here's the, the charge against them is that they don't believe human dignity is unassailable. Now, you can pretty much like, um, you know, put the, uh, put that charge on anyone. I mean, I'm sure people think that would say would say things like that about their opponents in most democracies. I mean, certainly in the U.S. They say that about me in any case. Yeah. That I, I, I have no respect for human dignity as such. Yeah, yeah, I mean, like, seriously, like, if you said something where you, like, I, I mean, it could be any example. It would be pretty easy to say, well, this person isn't fully on board with human dignity. A lot of woke people would probably say that about most of the rest of America, that they're not, they don't fully believe in the human dignity of people of color, black people, trans uh, trans people, LGBTQ, so on and so forth. So it's such a vague charge to be levied at someone. And I, I, re- I read that in the article. I'm like, wait, they spent two years and that is their conclusion. It, it almost, I thought it, I, it honestly felt like a parody. I was like reading an Onion an article because I, I know things that the AFD has said and done that are worse than that. And like there are legitimate concerns about that party, but you can do better, you know, Um, but it gets so. But the bigger question here is outcomes. And I guess the way that some of these German or like um, overseers of the democracy see it, they think that democracy should should generally lead to good outcomes. And if democracy leads to people like the AFD, getting more power on the local, state, or national level, then democracy is doing something wrong. And then democracy itself is a problem to be countered. And this is where I think you oftentimes have anti-democratic behavior in the name of democracy. And I think this is an example of that. And we've debated this for a long time. And I think it's it's really one of the core issues that I'm looking at at this point of my um, in my writing and research which is, why do we believe in democracy? Is democracy a means or an end? And what does it mean for democracy to be a means to something else? Right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, look, I mean, <clears throat> just on the, the narrower point of Germany, uh, again, I'm, I'm far from a German specialist or don't speak the language, don't really, only been there a few times. But, um, you know, I, the, at, the, at the heart of it is that the the main divergence and the main reason why this is such a I think it 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 translates into such a holy shit story over on this side is because our attitudes towards speech are completely different from from them I mean uh, that's at its heart is that the Germans have never uh, thought that free speech is some sort of inviolable thing that I can for, as far as I can tell in the post war post war era uh, you know speech is you know for all the reasons you outlined I mean it's potentially very dangerous and it's obviously comes from a, a, a historical recognition that uh, that democracies undo themselves. Ultimately, that's what we're talking about here. So it's not, it's not, it's if you take as a starting principle, democracies have a tendency to undo themselves. Um, 
And free speech is not uh, some sort of holy first principle, but rather uh, potentially a means for democracies to undo themselves. Well, here you are then. I mean, I, I think the, the, the standalone absurdity is the other thing that you pointed to, which is that uh, through uh, the way that you know, this, these grand coalitions are formed, you have the, the leaders of the opposition party being now surveilled on this. And that, 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 like, that's a bad look, uh, yeah. to put it, to, to uh, put it least. Um, but yeah, you know, I, it's, it's, I guess, I guess I'm still sort of struck by, you know, um, maybe this question of legitimacy because, you know, when you think about it, like where, where does legitimacy come from? Like, you know, at least in the, in the Western context, I'm not sure, I'm fairly sure this is not a universal story, but, but you have, you know, to oversimplify greatly, but at any one point in the sort of, uh, like early civilizational period, as civilizations have risen and fallen in the West, uh, certainly in the in the Dark Ages, you have these sort of I don't know uh, fiefdoms opening up, and and the nobility, such as they are, are the strongest ones. They're the the people who can organize violence the best. They are themselves the the strongest, the biggest killers, and they're they're able to to I don't know create some sort of order. So at at the earliest sense, there's some sort of like power legitimacy that is like brute strength legitimizes itself. The church then generally blesses this, uh, largely because, you know, this organizer of violence can keep some sort of order. And then the church says that, you know, God has sanctified this rule and you're, you're sort of left over with that, right? Past that, I don't know, you know, by the time you get into 17th, 18th century, uh, you have sort of the nobility is no longer particularly stronger or, you know, burlier or bigger or taller necessarily. Uh, they're getting more degenerate and feet, but they're still sort of blessed by God. And that just is like then taken over by this narrative, this democratic narrative, where on the one hand, the people bless the ruled and legitimate them, give them legitimacy to rule, right? But again, the the, the mechanism for this is this, this idea of outcomes. Um and I wonder, as you're dealing with this sort of question of democracy as an end to its, like a good in itself versus, you know, instrumental, I mean, I, it's impossible to, I guess, I'm, you know, in, 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 in thinking about this earlier today, it's, it is, it's, it's too much to write off the fact that, that outcome legitimacy is not a thing. It's, it's important, right? Is it important? Um, or not important, but like actually fundamental to... It's fundamental uh, uh, to how um, modern day technocrats on the center left and center right have viewed democracy uh, since the end of the Cold War. So it's certainly a mainstream opinion. It's also, um, there's another term that's used for it, which is performance legitimacy, mm. which is sometimes used specifically for China and other kind of um, authoritarian modernizers, uh, the and this could apply to Middle Eastern countries, the UAE, Saudi Arabia, that if they can, you know, produce dividends for their citizenry, even if they don't offer any freedoms or democratic competition, that is an exchange that many citizens might be comfortable accepting. So it's sort of this social bargain. But that also makes authoritarian regimes very vulnerable because if they can no longer um, produce um, astronomical economic growth and people still have high expectations and they have no, they have nothing else to really fall back on. And that's always the danger. And it's certainly a danger with China that if growth goes down to, you know, something lower, like, you know, whatever, four, five, six percent instead of, say, 10 percent annually, then... Um, then what ends up happening? Oh, it's right? interesting. I mean, right? Yeah, I, it's, I've, I've never actually fully made that that parallel of of you know uh, technocrats and and China, for example. I mean, obviously, obviously. I mean, Singapore also. I mean, obviously, it makes a lot of sense. I just never, I never, I never fully appreciated that when you just said it, because obviously that's a that's a thing. And I was just struck by this uh, outcome legitimacy concept, but it's it's clearly the exact same logic, which is. You know, we're creating these because when you think about it, these these grand coalitions, these these uh, uh, governing coalitions that seem to be happening in these uh, proportional representation uh, parliamentary systems in Europe to hold back the mass of of, uh, you know, quote unquote, illegitimate upstart parties. Uh, they are, you know, they're 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 doing this in a 
you know, well, by the letter of the law, it's fine to do that sort of thing. But it is at its at its heart is an impulse to crack down on these democratic forces, which are seen as dangerous to liberal democracy. Um, and really, that's not that. Well, it's is different, but it's there's a striking parallel to the fears that, you know, the Chinese state has from pluralism that the Russian state has from pluralism, right? It's, you know, the Chinese, the, the Russian model has been uh, uh, described as managed democracy, right? Mm, I mean, mm. that's a, that's a big, but you know, in a way uh, this sort of like late Western democracy, these grand coalitions forming to, you know, ostracize the, these uh, populist upstarts, that's managed democracy too, in a way, right? Yeah. Yeah. And that's why I think, um, most people, unfortunately, are not pluralists. When push comes to shove, they actually aren't super comfortable with that with that degree of diversity of whether it's ideological, ethnic, and and so on. And then they kind of withdraw inward. And you know, it, it, it's I think it's a universal problem, and that's why I think technocracy or the idea that experts should rule is popular, not just in a place like China or the UAE, but also, uh, certainly Singapore is probably the most successful example of this, but it's also popular among elites in Europe and the US. And obviously the, the EU is sort of a, a technocratic elite project of sorts that is supposed to produce good outcomes. And when it doesn't, you have a problem. And and, and that's, that's the bigger issue here that Outcome legitimacy is dangerous because democracies have no way of guaranteeing that outcomes will be consistently good over time. Because economic growth is not something you can always control. I mean, the U.S. has much more um, discretion because of the power of the Fed. But in other countries, there's only so much you can do to make the economy good. And even if you have the best experts and the support of the World Bank and the IMF, depending on what's happening in the rest of the world, like a pandemic, your economy might end up sucking. And then what do you then then what's left for you? So that's the danger that technocrats hold out this promise and they raise people's expectations. And they say, if you put us experts in power, your standard of living will improve. But then what happens if it doesn't? And that's why it's always better to not define your democracy in those terms. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's it's the 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 counter story and it's one I've always found compelling. Um I I I really hope we can in the coming weeks uh get this person on the podcast. I'm I'm working on it. Um Luke Vin Luke, Luke von, von Middler. Luke von Yeah, Middleton. <laughs> Kate Kate von Middleton. Luke von Middler. Um it's uh, uh, so he's been feuding with Perry Anderson in the London Review. As of books. one does, as one does, as one does, if one is successful. Um, <laughs> um, I so I don't know. You know, I I've, we've we've talked about it, I think in bonus episodes. I, I I think Luke von Middler is one of the most interesting people in like writing about Europe in particular uh, these days. Um, but you know, like the I, again, I won't try and like reprise his entire argument. Um, but there's a there's a, a another person I think is amazing. He passed away a few years ago. Um, uh, uh, Edmund Mor- Morgan, Edmund Morgan, uh, uh, hmm. who wrote uh, "Inventing the People," and you know, in our reading group, we read a, a little chunk of that. Oh yes, and 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 Middlear and Morgan have, I think, a very similar approach to again talking about this legitimacy thing, and it's something that you know when you and I talk, it's somehow uh, ma- mainly because I'm reacting to you to a lot of this stuff because I don't have like a very uh, solid theoretical like grasp of it of how I approach it, but I find really compelling the way Middlear and Morgan talk about what democracies are and how they're founded and then legitimated. And so let me just like read a little chunk yeah. here. This is the letter from uh, von Middlear to uh, Perry Anderson, which you all should read because it's really funny and <laughs> savage and just destroys Perry Anderson. But he he he. This is him sort of talking about his book. He says, how can a state arise from a condition of nature? A ballot box cannot establish itself. So one day someone must boldly claim to speak, quote, on behalf of a people, a country. This is the case for the EU, a latecomer, as it was for England in the mists of time or for the founders of the United States. 
Eventually, arbitrariness, bluff, and power struggles at the moment of inception are washed away by Whig historians to create a portrait of a great nation with venerable institutions. By highlighting the the at times implausible interplay between events, personalities, and institutional devices at breakthrough moments, his book gives short shrift to the Brussels variant of such a sanitized narrative. Now, what what's interesting about that, right, is is that what I really like about that story is that it's a it's a story of of uh, power legitimating itself through mechanisms, one of which is democracy. And it's interesting because Luke von Middelar is actually a Eurocrat at its at mm. his at his core, but he's a much more clever and learned and smart guy. So he actually drives normal Eurocrats up the wall by ripping down the veil of this kind of narrative building about how power legitimates itself, because it's so easy to do for the European Union because the democratic legitimacy was has never been properly founded there. But you know, taking it, what I'd love to talk to him about now is like taking that a little bit further and seeing how and if. European parliamentary democracies are also struggling with that right now, as basically the state itself is 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 wielding these these tools that undermine its own legitimizing narrative, which it arguably is is a democratic legitimizing narrative. You know, I mean, this goes, I think, pretty far off from where you stand, because you really do think that democracy itself is is what one builds out from. I just really like this 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 frame because it completely inverts it. It's like almost it's almost well, 180 degrees. Almost like it's almost like uh, 360 degrees. Like like funny universe from you. You know what I mean? Wait, is, Does that make is sense? It really though, I how how do you see it as being like the opposite of my position? Maybe lay, lay that out a little bit more explicitly for me. Um, I I I don't think. Von Middelar would say this, and I think uh, um, uh, Morgan is careful about it as well. Um, and I think they would both say in their own defense at the charge I'm going to level at them both is that just because something is a constructed narrative um, and covers the reality of power— uh, it doesn't mean it's any less real, is what they'd say in their own defense. But I think where it, I think you know, on maybe call it a moral plane, uh, I think is why it's the inverse of what you believe is that arguably uh, democracy is just is just this this veil that this like legitimate legitimating thing for how societies end up organizing themselves. And it's not intrinsically important. Maybe culturally rooted, uh, maybe effective, but not good or any or doesn't have any any content beyond that. Again, I, I imagine von Midlar would and the other guy if he was alive might might quibble with that. But uh anyway, I don't know. Does that make sense sort of? Because I always think that that you do ascribe something more inherent and less brutally utilitarian, though you do say that there's, you know, a kind of utilitarianness, but there's something else that I think comes out from you, which is hmm. some concept of the good that's like <laughs> packed in there, which maybe you try and hide, but, but it's, it's, that's what I mean. It's, it's, for them, it's very much something that, that arises through history as a mechanism of like legitimation of, you know, uh, what is a naked yes. political act. Put that way, my view is quite different. That said, I am struggling with some of these questions now. Um, because it, on one hand, I do sometimes talk about democracy in this minimalistic sense of it's good for regulating conflict. It's good for preserving the peace. It's good for managing pluralism. That's still pretty instrumental, and it's not a maximalist vision of democracy where democracy is leading to all these other good things that we love and everyone's happy and it's some kind of panacea. But on the other hand, as as listeners will know, sometimes I'll talk about democracy as if it's a kind of faith, and I am a believer of this faith. There's no doubt about that. And I feel very strongly about it. Perhaps there's nothing I feel more strongly about in politics than this. So there's a tension. 
And, um, and I think ultimately I would have to fall back on this notion that because, because I believe in God and I believe that God created man and woman. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I love that now I get like self-conscious about these things, like things that you would never think twice about in the past. You're always like, fuck, am I getting like, canceled right now? I think that's called progress, Shadi. That's the smell of progress. <laughs> it's literally what progress is. Yeah. So what was I saying? Uh, God created oh, man yeah, yeah. and woman. So then there is something to be said for realizing the individual individual agency matters. What individuals are able to realize in their own lives matters because it speaks to a deeper sense of human dignity. And that democracy allows individuals to be more fully themselves, whether or not that's good or bad, because they can be more fully themselves and express bad, destructive things. But there, I think there's something... There's something not religious, but there's something about how I understand human beings and their relationship to God that they should be able to fully express who they are if that if, as they so choose. And that can lead to sin. It can also lead to um, whatever the opposite of sin is. <laughs> so... But this, I mean, this also gets to the question of theodicy or the problem of evil, that I'm yeah. also like a pretty staunch believer in in free will. So I don't have a I don't have a big problem with theodicy. And we were talking about this, I, I guess, last night in our in our sort of secret reading group, which I can't say a whole lot more about. But I said, and this isn't totally historically accurate, but I, I would say like f at this point in time, Muslims have less of a problem with theodicy than Christians or Jews do. But I'll just speak for myself only because I'm not – the issue of theodicy in Islam is very complex and I, I can't really you know, speak to the – to the to that but um but wrap it back to democracy i think that's really interesting about yeah. theodicy theodicy so so you know uh, talk to me about this role of democracy and god and the the possibility of democracy doing ill i mean i think that's that's actually really productive go run with that a bit okay if democracy does ill it's only a product of the accumulated decisions of individuals right and I think that whatever individuals decide to do, we have to live with those consequences. And that relates to theodicy because – so when people say, well, how did God allow for this genocide or this civil war or whatever else it might be and this suffering, that let's say the person who orchestrated a genocide or a massacre in a given country, I don't see any – any potent, any real persuasive scenario where God could have intervened and stopped that person from committing those atrocities, because that would undermine the whole system of free will upon which monotheistic religion is based. Because if you have hell and heaven, that means you have accountability. And the only way you can have accountability is you allow people to commit sins, even if they are terrible sins. Right. The whole the whole structure of accountability falls apart if God is stopping egregious acts. And so the role of the the German state in right now with the AFD they're they're playing they think they're playing God within the confines of their of their of their society. Interesting. They, I hadn't thought of that. I hadn't made that connection, but that's, that's an interesting I just analogy. Made it too. I mean, that's just interesting. I, I don't know. I don't know how well the analogy works. It's, it's just occurring to me as well as we talk right now. But that's the that's what I was getting at. Like, play with this theodicy uh, question about yeah. Democracy it's interesting. As well. So, if we compare the office for the protection of the constitution in Germany to God, yeah, yeah. I mean, well, um, it's an attitude towards democracy that is one. That uh, would be, I guess, the, the equivalent of Christians wanting God to write things to make sure that bad things don't happen. Whereas you would argue that uh, democracies, uh, just like the collective, the co collective of humanity writ large, uh, it's, it's an expression of free will. And the free will yeah. is what's huh. most important, uh, wow. even if it leads to terrible outcomes, right? Interesting. I, okay, I hadn't put all this together, but now that you're— the connection between theodicy and democracy, I might, I want to think about that more. There could be something there. 
Shadi, I want like <laughs> such a nice thank you paragraph in this fucking book. Oh man, this is actually why I like doing this a lot. Yeah. And it, you know, talking talking about things produces ideas. Anyway, I won't do a little I won't do a spiel or a spiel. <laughs> One of our listeners makes fun of me on Twitter. Um spiel our, away. Our friend Mark. Yeah. He he claims that I mispronounce spiel. <laughs> And I, I can't even figure out which one it is because I'm confused now. Is it spiel or is it spiel? Oh, you're lying. You're not confused. And then is it <laughs> is, then is it is it is it is it Spielberg or is it Spielberg? Spielberg, exactly, exactly. It's so confusing. Very much. Yeah. Anyway, Shadi, I think that's a that's an interesting place to to wrap up. Perhaps indeed. Uh, well, also, I, I don't know if you have time to do the bonus episode now, but in any case, we will do one. So this offers me an opportunity to do our little marketing pitch and to say, first of all, thank you guys for supporting what we do. Our listenership is growing and um, we're excited about that. And some of you joined us on Clubhouse when we did our little thing last week. Um, so we're building something here and it, it's a it's a pretty exciting phase for Wisdom of Crowds. So if you want to support the work we're doing and help us build out our community, I would um, humbly suggest that you might consider subscribing to Wisdom of Crowds by going to wisdomofcrowds.live slash subscribe and uh, and uh, doing that. And even if you're not ready to pay yet, just sign up for the free version too, so you can only see our, our free content and catch up on that. And get it delivered to your inbox. Oh, yeah. Right? That's yeah, a right. pretty cool thing. You know, yeah. who doesn't yeah. want that? Yeah. Who doesn't want more email? But <laughs> and I, and, uh, yeah, go on. And not to, um, I don't want to give a specific time, but Demir and I will probably be doing something on Clubhouse uh, on Monday at night. So just yeah. keep an eye out for that. We'll probably tweet about it and give you guys a heads up. But feel free to join and Demir, any any final words? Yeah, final words. Also, yeah, stay tuned for next week. I think we'll have uh, we'll be talking a little bit more about some other stuff we're going to be doing uh, on the the website, sort of conceptually, thematically, bringing some more people into the fold to to talk and develop some stuff. Uh, so yeah, Ashadi was alluding exciting times. Uh, glad to have you guys along for the ride. Really, thanks for for everything. Great. All right. Later, Demir. Bye. Bye.